0: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. It's a special edition because um, we're doing something a bit different. Now, I, I, at the moment, I'm recording this on a Monday, and I do intend to uh, still prepare and record uh, our, one of our regular podcasts talking about the Gospel of Luke. But that may be a little bit later in the week than usual because I want to do this first. Now, I've been uh, on Sunday afternoons for the last three weeks. I have been teaching a class, a really just short-term study, on uh, human sexuality, gender, marriage, what the Bible has to say about it all. Um, the, the, the overarching term for all of that, really, is the theology of the body. And we'll get into why that's important in a minute. Um, but, but uh, you know, one, not everyone could be there all three weeks, and uh, the response to those to it by the people who were there was was overwhelmingly positive, like much better than I would have thought, to be honest. Um, and and so I decided it it makes sense to record this as a podcast and put it out there so that people. Uh, not, only, not only those of you who might have only been able to be there for one week or, or one of the, or you know, two or three weeks or something like that, but also for all of the people who uh, weren't able to come at all or maybe didn't even know it was happening, um, it, it makes sense to do this. And so uh, if you're listening and you were there for those three weeks, you may put, I mean, you, you may have um, missed some things in, in the classes or maybe you missed one of the weeks and you want to catch up. I'm going to do this all in one podcast, so it's going to be longer than usual. Uh, but I do think I can keep it to a reasonable length. Okay, so we are going to dive right in. Now, this is the the over. I I, I advertised the class uh, on Sundays as as a class about human sexuality because I wanted to make sure you understood what what the thr- how this applies to our everyday life and and what kind of specific issues we would be tackling. Uh, and frankly because let's be honest sex sells right uh, if i advertise it as a sex class people are going to show up um, but <laughs> it's not it's not just that and so really the the the, the proper term i want to use here is it's it's about the theology of the body which is an important term and a very important area of theology that the the church has neglected for a long time but as we're going to see this is a really deep and rich and well-thought-out area in most cases. And uh, we are not developing anything new here. We are reclaiming very ancient, very traditional teachings of the church. Um, these, these are the teachings that underlie a lot of Christian morality. Um, and in, in recent, in the last couple of centuries especially... Uh, the church has just not done a particularly good job of teaching these, not just to you all, the lay people in the pews, but to people like me, the clergy, who are responsible for teaching people how to live as Christians. We aren't we aren't taught in seminary about any of this stuff, um, and there are lots of reasons for that. Not not just that some of our seminaries don't want to teach it because they don't agree with it, uh, although that's just, they're flat out wrong to think that uh, they're flat out wrong to disagree with it. I think, but uh, but also because Quite often, they don't, even if they would agree with it, they don't teach it, because we haven't taught it for a long time, and there's lots of reasons. One of them is just that when the church was the uh, driving moral force in society, there was no need to go through and teach all this detail, but now there is, and so we have to reclaim it. So, we are going to start off with things that aren't necessarily directly about sexuality, but you're going to see how they actually come in and affect it, okay? So, we start, actually, in the book of Genesis. Let me open my Bible here. Probably should have done that before I started talking, but I got excited. So, we start in Genesis, and and the reason we start in Genesis is because... When Jesus is asked a question by, I believe in that case it is the Pharisees who ask it, at one point the Sadducees Sadducees ask him a similar question, but when the Pharisees ask him a question about uh, marriage and divorce, Jesus doesn't actually point them back to the Old Testament laws. He points them back to the creation story and Adam and Eve. And this is a way of saying that, we don't we don't look to the the law of the old testament as the ideal of our life the, the the moral ideal the highest possible morals you can achieve rather it's kind of the opposite because these laws were given because of your hardness of heart and so in that sense these laws are actually like the bare minimum Instead, we look to the creation story in Adam and Eve because that tells us what God's creational intent was. That tells us what God meant for things to be like and how he designed us to work. So, we go into Genesis 1, and here's what we're going to see in Genesis 1, starting in verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. The light was good. And you will skip ahead a little bit. And in, in, in verse ten, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Skipping ahead again. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's skip ahead again into verse 17. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light over the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Are you picking up on the pattern here? In verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God made the beasts of the earth, according to their kinds, and the livestock, according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Then God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. All this establishes a very important point, which is our baseline for everything else I'm going to say today, which is that creation is good. Creation is good. That's important because we are a part of creation and that means our bodies are good. It's really crucial to understand that we are an embodied people. Our bodies matter. Okay, we are supposed to honor our bodies. Christ came in a body. He slept, he ate, he used the bathroom, he bathed, he brushed his teeth, he woke up with morning breath. Christ had the same body we have. The body is not incidental. It is integral to our worship. We are embodied. We experience life and pleasure in our bodies. The redemption that Jesus offers occurs in our bodies. When we die, we don't float off to heaven for all eternity to live forever as disembodied spirits. We await our physical resurrection in our bodies. Christ appeared to his disciples in his body, a fleshly body that ate and, drank, and he bodily ascended into heaven, which means even now, Jesus remains in his body. So our morality as Christians is not a spiritual morality. It is an embodied morality. And that includes sexual purity. It also includes things like moderation in food and drink how we live our lives in every aspect, including all of the physical aspects of our lives, this is tied into our morality as Christians. And this morality is not about disdaining our physical appetites, but recognizing that our bodies are central to our life in Christ. Because our bodies and our souls are inseparable. Which means that what we do with our bodies and our souls are always intertwined. What you do to one will always affect the other. Now, I want to stress here, this does not mean um, you can look at someone and look at their physical condition and assess how sinful or how holy they are. Okay? That's not what this means. All we are saying, and this is not, it's not like, okay, this person's in poor physical health, ergo, they must be a sinner. All we're saying is there is a connection. There is a connection between what we do physically, and the condition of our souls. Our physical behaviors, our indulgence of our physical appetites, reveal something of our character and something of our internal realities. There's a connection there. And research is bearing this out, right? there, There is increasingly... Uh, A a large body of research that suggests that your diet and your level of physical activity are actually extremely important for your mental health. Uh, There is a connection between depression and anxiety and diet. How you eat, how how you behave, can affect you in ways that we don't always foresee or understand. Nonetheless, it's real. So what we do with our bodies affects everything else. In fact, what we are seeing all around, particularly in the western world today, is that one of the oldest heresies in the world is reasserting itself. Now that heresy is called Gnosticism, and it insists that our souls are what really matters and our bodies in this world are really irrelevant. Now you can see this in both conservative and progressive circles. So in conservative circles, particularly within the evangelical world, you see this this dogged insistence that what you do with the body, it's not as important because the soul is what matters. When you die, your body has gone forever. You live as a disembodied soul. All of this world we live in is going to be destroyed in fire and it's gone forever. And we go live in this place called heaven. What you see on the progressive side of things is The same heresy worked out in different ways. The body is less important. There is a true inner self that is divorced from the body. We just inhabit the body. And so your inner self can be markedly different from the outer self. And then then your physical behaviors are not all that important because what matters is what's on the inside. You see that worked out in progressive circles. Now, this is one of the oldest heresies in the world. And, And the Bible actually insists... that, That bodies and all that comes with them, including all the regular maintenance and use of the bodies, like brushing your teeth and combing your hair, and using the restroom even, are meant to be done for the glory of God as a celebration of the goodness of creation. Because creation is good, and God is not going to destroy creation. He is not rescuing us from creation, in fact. The Bible tells the story of a God who is rescuing us for the sake of creation because we are his representatives. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, the way we use our bodies teaches us what our bodies are for. The world preaches that our bodies are meant to be used or abused as we see fit. That our bodies are themselves actually objects of worship. And this is what lust is all about, isn't it? Worshipping the human body as an idol. And the implication of this is that sexuality is all about fulfilling our own desires. This is what the world teaches. And there is an element of progressive Christianity that has embraced that idea and refuses to talk against it. It's one of the reasons that, that this is so important to understand because the Bible teaches us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. In the exact same way that the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God's presence was, so now each of our bodies is the temple. Jesus and Paul both make this explicit, that we as individual Christians and as the body of Christ in our churches, we have replaced the temple in Jerusalem. We now fulfill that function. We are the places where heaven meets earth. We We, physically, our bodies, are holy places. Our bodies are first and foremost instruments of divine worship. And so the problem with sexual sin is not that God does not want us to enjoy our bodies or to enjoy our sexuality. It's that our bodies, which are sacred places of worship, can be used for sacrilege. When we use our bodies to worship the false gods of sex or personal autonomy... It's not that we're breaking some arbitrary rule or ancient commandment. It's that we are using the most sacred object on earth in a way that denigrates its beautiful God-given purpose. So the reason that sexual sin is such a scandal is not because the Bible is prudish. It's really profoundly the opposite. The disciples are not prudes at all. It's not that sex is dirty, because it's not. It's that our bodies, our skin, our flesh, our hands, our feet, our muscles, all our other body parts are more sacred and more holy than any communion chalice or any baptismal font. There is no holy site on earth as sacred as the human body. To ignore the teachings of scripture about the proper use of the human body and how to use And and, and then to use our bodies for our own false worship, which is precisely what all sexual sin is. This is the misuse of the sacred that would be something like using consecrated communion elements in a Wiccan ceremony. And so this is the foundation of everything I'm going to talk about for the rest of this podcast. Our bodies are good and our bodies are sacred. Our bodies are holy places. They are in fact more holy than any of the holy sites you can go visit in Israel. And so what we do with our bodies matters much more so than we realize. So I want us to take a look here at Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 through 5. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to start in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Let's go on a little further. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I've addressed the, the, the specific teaching on divorce here in other podcasts, so I'm not going to talk about it today. I want to talk about what Jesus is really saying here, because what Jesus is really doing is he is relaunching God's original project of creation, which was interrupted by human sin. The law is given because of the hardness of heart. Comes upon sinful people, but from the beginning it was not so. So we are less concerned actually with what Leviticus and Deuteronomy say, and we are more concerned with what God's original creational intent is. And so this is the ideal. Genesis 1 and 2 are the actual standard which we are meant to live up to. And we learn in Genesis that we are God's image bearers, which means we have an important purpose in the world. God called everything he created good, except for the human body, which he called very good. The created order has inherent, built-in moral boundaries. Our bodies, therefore, are fundamentally trustworthy and good. And our bodies, as images of God, tell us certain truths about ourselves. First, they tell us we have dominion over creation. In the ancient world, it was the custom for rulers to place a statue or image of himself in lands that they conquered as a way of signifying their presence as the sovereign ruler over that land. So by placing his image bearers, which is us, in the garden, God installed us as the living embodied representatives of his rule and his reign over creation. We are the earthly embodied presence and extension of the sovereignty and glory of God. Now, the whole creation story is organized to show a certain order. God creates three realms on days one through three, and then on days four through six, he creates three rulers over those realms. So, the sun, the moon, and the stars rule over the realm of light and darkness. The birds and the fish rule over the realm of the waters and the sky. Animals rule over the land, and then humanity rules over them all. Our dominion, as an extension of the sovereignty of God, extends over the whole of creation. We are responsible for all of it. This is why God gives Adam the dignity of naming the animals in Genesis 2, because He has dominion over them. And we need to note here that dominion is not the same thing as domination. Dominion implies caretaking and stewardship. Which means we as Christians have to reclaim the idea of caring for creation, not abusing creation, not extracting all we can from creation but caring for it, understanding that God loves the things he created. And we are responsible for the condition that God's creation is in. So if the condition of the world is bad, we have to answer for that, and we ought to be deeply concerned by this. This has wide-ranging implications. We need to be concerned about things like animal welfare. We should be concerned about the state of the environment. This doesn't mean we need to believe everything we hear in the news, but it means we need to pay attention. Follow the research. Think through these things on a deep, deep level. Because we're going to have to answer to God for the condition of the world we live in. That will be part of our judgment. Now, in addition, in addition to having dominion, One of the things that comes with being made in the image of God is fruitfulness and reproducibility. We reflect God's creative work by becoming co-creators with him. We're called to be fruitful and to multiply. And in doing that, we bring out the relational aspect of the image of God. God is Trinity, three in one. And in the microcosm of the family, we reflect the eternal relationships that are found in the Trinity. So the reason Eve is a suitable companion for Adam is that together, they are able to reproduce. This is a fundamental part of how we are designed. We cannot separate the act of sexual intimacy from its purpose, which is the creation of life. We will try. Lord knows we've tried to separate that, and look where it's gotten us. This was one of the fundamental premises of the sexual revolution, was that we're going to separate the act of sex from its purpose, the creation of life. And it has not helped anyone. Well, that's not quite true. There were some aspects of it that, that were useful and good, but by and large, it's caused a lot of problems. To suggest that we can separate sex from its original purpose is, is just to live in denial of the reality. And the third aspect here is the physicality of God's presence in the world. God breathes the breath of life into Adam. He endows the physical world with the very presence of God. So, what does it mean for us to live as God's image? It means we have a representative capacity as God's image bearers to steward and care for God's good creation. We are responsible for what God gave us. We're supposed to care for the earth and all that lives in it. We're supposed to nurture it, to order it, and to reflect God's good and wise rule into the rest of creation. And it seems pretty clear to me we have failed spectacularly on that front. We ought to be extremely aware of that. Now the second part of it is, we have uh, a relational capacity as God's image bearers. We have the ability to create not just new life, we have the ability to create new image bearers. Our human relationships in marriage, a family of husband, wife, and child, is meant to reflect the eternal mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And finally, we have a moral capacity as well. We're called to uphold and reflect God's good and perfect morality in the midst of his creation. And this is precisely why original sin was so destructive. Because the very people responsible for reflecting God's perfect morality into the midst of his creation went the opposite way. So we can say then that creation is good and trustworthy. Our bodies are good and trustworthy. And, and there, there, there is a growing distrust of the human body reflected in this rapid rise of gender dysphoria that we see all around us. And this is a sign. It's a sign of the brokenness of our world. When, we are, when people are insisting that the body is not a trustworthy indicator of who we are, this is, a, this is a major break from the Christian belief that our bodies are good and trustworthy and they tell us exactly who we are and what our purpose is. We do not acknowledge the existence of a, a true inner self that is separate from our bodies. Our bodies and our souls are one integrated unit created as a living icon of Christ. The physical body makes visible the spiritual reality. And if our bodies are good, they are therefore markers of God's goodness and God's moral order in the world. Our bodies, therefore, are not morally neutral. The entire creation account is structured around divinely instituted binaries. Light and dark, earth and sky, water and land, sun and moon, and male and female. Nothing in creation is random and nothing is morally neutral. Moreover, God and God alone establishes the moral boundaries of creation. We don't have the prerogative or the right to challenge God's moral structures. We do not have absolute claim over our bodies, nor do we have the right to do with them as we see fit, because they are sacred temples made by God and for God. And because we are the embodied image of God, our bodies point to a higher reality. So when I say our bodies are icons of Christ, they are windows into the heavenly realm. They are visible and physical signs of the invisible reality in the same way that when we baptize someone, the water is a visible sign of the inward reality. When we take communion, the bread and the, and the cup are physical signs of the spiritual reality. Our bodies are the physical extension of God's presence in the world. And specifically, our bodies as part of the male-female binary are the image of God. And so all of this, all of this is the foundation for understanding Christian teaching about sexuality, marriage, and gender. So, now, with that said, and feel free to pause if you need to take notes, but we're going to move on into a conversation on sex and marriage. So first off, what does the Bible actually say about sex and marriage? Well, we've already talked about Jesus pointing back to the creation story when he crafts his own theology of marriage and sexuality, but let's reiterate. Um, let's reiterate something. For for a male and female to become husband and wife, to become one flesh, is not just how things normally happen. It's not just how things have it's not just the way people assume it's gonna happen. It is how God made them to be. It is how God wishes them to be understood. Jesus affirmed that teaching. Jesus is also the one who tells us that not one dot of the law of Moses will pass away because, in fact, he's come to fulfill the law, not abolish the law. And that means that the the condemnations of same-sex practice in chapters like Leviticus 18 and 20 are still actually relevant to us. Um, People will say... Jesus never mentions anything about this, but that's not entirely true. He mentions actually in passages like Mark seven twenty one, he condemns sexual immorality, which means at a bare minimum, the Old Testament laws regarding sexual practice. Anytime in the fact that in the New Testament where you see the word sexual immorality being used, um, that includes all the laws of the Old Testament about sexual practice. So Jesus does, in fact, Explicitly condemned same-sex practice. He just lumps it into this terminology of sexual morality because he doesn't need to draw that out. He is talking almost exclusively to Jewish crowds who would have been familiar with the law. He doesn't need to actually explain it beyond just using the phrase sexual immorality. Paul, on the other hand, is talking mostly to Gentiles, and as we'll see, the requirements are different. So one of the really common objections to the church's teaching on same-sex marriage and and, and sexual morality is that is that we are trying to uphold the laws in the Leviticus about sex, but we readily ignore the rest of it. We wear we wear clothes made with two different fibers. We eat shellfish and pork, um, and the problem is that objection demonstrates a flat-out misunderstanding of the purposes of the laws. It's a lazy theology. Um, The the so-called purity or ritual laws of the Old Testament, they had a very specific purpose. The purpose of, of actually the entirety of the Old Testament laws. Their purpose was to mark the people of God as different from the rest of the world. They established a clear and obvious divide between Jew and Gentile. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection completely does away with the temple and all its sacrificial offerings and all its rituals. So all the laws governing that have been fulfilled in Jesus. But Jesus also erases the divide between Gentile and Jew. So the laws that existed purely for creating the distinction between the two peoples have also been fulfilled and set aside. And we're now left with laws that are purely for moral instruction. Those of us who belong to God are no longer marked by things like not eating bacon. Thanks be to God, right? Instead, what marks us out now as separate from the rest of the world is our obedience to and faith in Israel's Messiah, in which we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the New Testament makes explicit over and over and over again that one of the clear markers of obedience to Israel's Messiah is abstaining from sexual immorality. And And let's be clear, the New Testament never once redefines sexual immorality. It maintains the definition of that from the Old Testament. That definition is never changed, it is never relaxed in the slightest. Jesus doesn't back off of it, Paul never backs off of it. Even as Paul is explicitly telling people that they don't have to follow some laws, he never backs off of the instructions for sexual immorality. This remains one of the clear markers of God's people. And so the moral instructions of the Old Testament are the basis of the moral instructions of the New Testament. And with that in mind, let's go to Acts chapter 15. Open up my Bible to that chapter real quick. So in Acts chapter 15, I'm just going to read it to you. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God who knows the heart will as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild his ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known, known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted from idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And so they write a letter to the Gentiles, saying, okay, you no longer have to be circumcised, you no longer have to follow the laws of Moses, but you still have to abstain from sexual immorality. Here you have the Council of Jerusalem, the leaders of the early church, making a clear decision that the Jewish purity laws don't apply to Gentile believers, but that sexual immorality, as defined by the Old Testament, was still clearly and firmly forbidden. Now obviously we don't apply, we don't turn to the same punishments used in the Old Testament because Jesus Himself, when the woman who is caught in adultery is brought to him, he he does not apply the punishment. And that that story is a very clear case of Jesus upholding the moral teaching and reaffirming the moral teaching that he says to her, Go and, and sin no more. He affirms that she has sinned, but he removes the penalty. which in and of itself is a very theologically rich statement. He removes the penalty, he affirms that it's still sinful, and tells her, go and sin no more. And this is then how we approach these laws. We affirm the moral teaching, we remove the penalty. So the best way for Christians to approach the laws of Moses is to pay really close attention to their moral teachings, because these still form the basis of our own moral teachings. Jesus never altered or rejected the morality of the Old Testament, and neither did the apostles. Scripture affirms time and time and time again that this is still the standard for our sexual morality. The penalty is gone. We aren't stoning people to death. We aren't excluding them from our communities if they're guilty of these sins. but We are still affirming that these things are sinful. So that deals with Jesus in the Gospels. Now again, Jesus doesn't talk a whole lot about sexual immorality because he's talking to Jewish believers. And that just was not a major problem for them. Paul is a bit different. There's no doubt, no doubt, that Paul believed that same-sex practice was morally wrong. He very clearly understood it as just a normal part of our fallen humanity. Now this is not just my opinion. This is the consensus of respectable Bible scholars everywhere, including those who disagree with Paul. There is quite literally no room for argument here. It's it's unambiguous what Paul believed. Paul treats same-sex desire as one of many desires that has its root in the fall. It's part of the unfortunate reality of the broken creation. And just, I'm going to quote N.T. Wright here. N.T. Wright says, There are no surprises on this in the Bible. For Jews, homosexual behavior wasn't an issue because it was assumed to be out of bounds based on the Old Testament law, uh, except as part of a larger whole to which Jesus refers in traditional biblical terms, sexual immorality. For non-Jews, such as those addressed by Paul, it was an obvious issue, since every possible kind of sexual expression was well known in cities like Corinth and Rome. There is a popular belief just now that the ancients didn't know about lifelong same-sex relationships, but this is easily refuted by the evidence both literary and archaeological. So that's N.T. right on the subject. So there are clear examples in the Greco-Roman world, not only in Paul's day, but centuries before Paul's time, centuries before Christ's time, of loving, committed, and monogamous gay relationships. There is a strong tradition in ancient Greek literature of writing homoerotic stories and poetry. It wasn't just common, it was perfectly social, socially acceptable. In fact, many of the Roman emperors, including Caesar Augustus and Emperor Hadrian, had gay love affairs. Hadrian's lover Antonus was even made a god in the Roman pantheon. There is no question whatsoever that the society to which Paul was writing his letters knew about same sex love, were familiar with committed, monogamous, loving, consensual same sex relationships, and that Paul's teachings in the New Testament were profoundly countercultural. So let's go back for a minute to Genesis 1. We are made in God's image. Now, when Paul in his letters refers to our nature and describes things as being natural and unnatural, he doesn't mean nature as in what we are now. What he means is nature as in what God intended for us to be. And so because we are God's image bearers in the world, we are his representatives. There is a proper use for our bodies, which is tied to God's creational intent. So Paul writes in essence that same-sex acts are counter to the image of God, because they do not fit his intentions for the worship of God in the sacred space of this world. Now, in on Romans 1, Paul makes his most famous statement about same-sex practice. And it's again, it's unambiguous. He is extraordinarily clear in, in condemning gay sex. And he's condemning it very explicitly in the context of loving, consensual relationships. Anyone who tries to to tell you otherwise, again, it's late. They, they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't they haven't actually read the text, I bet. Because it's really clear the language he's using leaves no room for argument, not only in the English, but in the original Greek. There is no room for for doubting what Paul is saying. He went to great lengths to be really clear and really explicit. And he's actually using gay sex in in this passage as a symbol for all of human sin because of the way it represents an inversion of the physical reality of being made male and female in the image of God. So in other words, Paul isn't describing gay people so much as he is describing the effect of sin's entry into the world, which is that we all now have desires that run counter to God's purpose and God's image. So he portrays sin as this twisting or inversion of God's purposes for our lives and our bodies. But maybe what's even more important is that he also makes it explicit that these desires can never disqualify a person from receiving God's love and from, in repentance, entering the kingdom of God. The only way they can do that is if you make those desires your entire identity and in the process you reject God's salvation in Christ. And that's important. When Paul includes his vice lists in his letters. The implication is that some of the people reading those letters were previously guilty of the sins he's listing and they are no longer committing them. In other words, some of the original readers of Paul's letters were people who at one time were sexually active gay men and women, and they are now celibate. Paul's letters indicate the full acceptance of such persons in the church from its very earliest days. And let's be clear there is a lot of misinformation out there right now that the UMC is moving towards full inclusion. Um, the UMC is already fully inclusive, the church is already fully inclusive. To suggest that to be inclusive, you must approve of any and all lifestyle choices. It's utter nonsense. It is an extraordinarily narrow and inaccurate definition of inclusion. And there is just no theological basis for that statement whatsoever. It's a lie, in other words. It's a lie to suggest that the church is not fully inclusive right now, because it is. The churches Paul wrote to were fully inclusive of persons who were sexually active gay men and women. It held them to the ethical standards of the Bible, even as it included them. It's also worth noting that this means this has been a perennial struggle for Christians. It isn't something new that's only popped up in this generation. It isn't a cultural issue. That's nonsense. It's been going on since the very beginning of the church, and the church's moral teachings on sexuality have been countercultural from the beginning. The gospel as given by Jesus and taught by Paul offers radical inclusion to all who accept Christ, but full acceptance does not deny the moral guidance of Scripture. Now, these teachings can be difficult, but we always should remember that right on the heels of every teaching that condemns homosexual activity is an affirmation of God's extravagant mercy and redemption. God condemns homosexual behavior, and he still lavishes his love on homosexual persons. And So let's talk for a bit about marriage. God gave us the union of male and female marriage as a a sacred thing. It is a one flesh union reflecting the triune God who is love. Eve's name literally means helper. And and it it actually has this connotation of, of the help you get when people reinforce you in battle. So by himself... Adam is weak and exposed. And the same is true for Eve. It's together in their union as husband and wife that the image of God is completed. Adam needs Eve, and Eve needs Adam. In both social and biological terms, they can't work without each other. They can't fulfill their purposes without each other. They need each other's differences, and together they make up the original humanity. And in this way, marriage shows us the shape of the gospel by modeling love community, and selflessness, and in taking two and making them into one flesh, which is literal language, not metaphorical language, you get unity in diversity in one person, just as you do in the Trinity. But marriage is not the only way to reflect God's image and likeness. It is simply the only way that involves having sex. God has provided other forms of intimacy and other ways of bringing people into union with each other. And so, equating sex with intimacy is a false equivalency. Sex is merely one form of intimacy. It is not the only form. Now, the church itself is supposed to be an alternate family structure. And friendships, also, are meant to provide this kind of intimacy. Now, Scripture even has several examples of this. David and Jonathan... Naomi and Ruth, Paul and Timothy, Jesus and John. God used these deep friendships to express truths about his coming kingdom. Naomi and Ruth, for example, foreshadow God's eventual adoption of the Gentiles. Now, people will look back on some of these, and they will read into David and Jonathan, for instance. They will read into it a homosexual relationship. But again, it's nonsense. There's no reason to think that. That is just the result of people who live in an overly sexualized culture, struggling to comprehend the possibility of a deep, intimate relationship that does not involve a sexual component. But for most of human history, and in most places in the world right now, that's the norm. Having these deep friendships which have an intimacy that is every bit as deep and powerful as that of marriage is the norm. And it has been throughout most of human history. And we in the modern West are blind to it. And we have to reclaim that idea. And so much of the outrage at the church when it condemns gay sex stems from the belief that sex is a requirement for human flourishing, that actually our sexuality is a crucial part of our identity, it defines who we are, but this simply is not true. We can flourish in a life of celibacy just as much as we can in a life of healthy sexual activity, and sexuality simply is not a part of who we are. In fact, when Jesus tells the Sadducees that in the resurrection we will neither marry nor be given in marriage, he's telling us something really important about sexuality, which is that it is not eternal. We do not carry our sexuality with us into the next life. And that means it cannot be part of our identity. And it also means it cannot be crucial to our happiness or our flourishing. The love that we experience in true friendship is not inferior to the love we experience in marriage. In fact, it is its exact equal. And again, we fail to recognize this largely because our society has devalued that sort of friendship and over-sexualized the entire concept of love, so much so that it is hard for modern persons in the Western world to conceive of any kind of loving relationship that doesn't turn sexual. Jesus himself lived a sexless life and a marriage-less life. When a person embraces celibacy either as a single person who is waiting for marriage or as a person, gay or straight, who is committed to a life of celibacy, we are imitating Jesus. Part of Jesus' suffering in going to the cross was giving up the possibility of having children and a family. Remember, he's fully human as well as fully divine, and I know that math doesn't work out. But this is a core part of Christian belief that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He had all the human longings. He would have experienced lust. He would have experienced physical attraction. And he would have had, almost certainly, that, de- that deep-seated desire to marry, to have a family, to have children. And this is part of his suffering in going to the cross, is giving up that possibility altogether. Which means that celibate persons carry that suffering with Jesus. And of course the Apostle Paul was also celibate and chose not to marry or to be sexually active. And because sexuality is not an eternal thing in our lives and the resurrection will all be celibate lives, persons who live celibate now are living icons of the future reality for us all. So we have to reclaim the idea that sex is not essential for human flourishing, that friendship is meant to be every bit as intimate as marriage because sex is not the only form of intimacy, and that celibacy is not just a viable option for a few, but a deeply holy calling for many. Now, what everyone really wants to know is, does this all mean that being gay is a one-way ticket to hell? And first, no, because the Bible doesn't condemn being gay, but it condemns homosexual behavior. Uh, that's an important distinction. The, 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 if you are you you experience, if you experience same sex attraction, you don't have control over that. It happens to you. You aren't condemned for that. It's, it's how you respond to it, that matters. So, does having gay sex condemn you to hell? Does it do it automatically? What about a gay couple who in every other aspect of their lives are living as faithful Christians? Will God condemn them for this one sin? Let's think about this for a minute. Most of you, you probably know people, whether it's an older family member or, or a friend or a co-worker or someone, perhaps someone who's passed on already, But that they are devout, loving, gracious, compassionate Christians who are also deeply racist. The gospel had penetrated every part of their lives, but hadn't quite made it through to that part of them yet. Will they go to hell for that one sin to which they were blind? Today, many evangelical Christians across the country practice their faith in every area of their life. They are devout, they are loving, they are gracious, they are compassionate, except in one area. They ignore God's command to humanity to care for and steward his creation. They dismiss creation care and environmentalism altogether as irrelevant concerns. That's a sin. Let's be clear. But do we think that they will be condemned for that one sin? I think we can say something similar in terms of homosexuality. I think that there are, in all likelihood, a large number of devout and sincere Christians who follow Jesus in every way except for their sexual behavior. Now, their sincerity and their devotion don't justify their sexual practices any more than other Christian sincerity would justify their disregard for creation care or their racism. But we can, we can lovingly say that a person who fails to care for the earth but has no awareness in their heart of violating God's word in that failure can still be saved through the atoning grace of Jesus Christ. So the same, then, must be true of people who are sincere in their faith but have not yet surrendered their sexual behavior to Jesus. And I think this is where we need to be. We have a responsibility to uphold the truth and to offer grace. None of us would blink twice at correcting racism, and I would suggest we shouldn't, we shouldn't blink twice at correcting a disregard for the care of creation. But we would also recognize that persons guilty of these sins are, autom- are not automatically doomed to hell. We would probably recognize that we ourselves are guilty of similar, if not the exact same sins, and the same should be applied to sexuality. Scripture is shockingly clear and unambiguous on the matter. There is no room for doubt about what the Bible teaches regarding sex. None. None at all. Anyone who says otherwise is living in denial. They're not paying attention to the research, they're not paying attention to the biblical scholarship. They are living in denial. It's nonsense and it's a lie. The Bible is clear and unambiguous in a way that it is not on many other issues. The moral teachings of the Bible about sex are consistent from the beginning. Sex is to be between one man and one woman in heterosexual marriage. Any other sexual activity is a violation of God's purposes and His image. And it's also true that God is unimaginably merciful and forgiving. There are undoubtedly many Christians who are sincere and faithful in every area but this one. And while we might long for them to see the truth, we can also trust and hope that God in his mercy will save them, just as he will save us too, since we undoubtedly have sins which we are blind to. Now, if that's true, the question may become, well, then why bother? Why bother? Telling them to stop. Why bother teaching this truth? If, if God can save them anyway, why not let them enjoy their lives? Well, two things. One, again, sex is not crucial to human flourishing. Intimacy can be found outside of it. So to suggest that they have to be able to do this to have a good life is nonsense. In addition, when we talk about sin and repentance... This is not just about eternal reality. It's it's about what happens in your life right this minute, right now. Sin has immediate consequences. Gay people who are sexually active are, simply put, not going to be as fulfilled or as happy as they would be if they were celibate and focused on Jesus. And I know that sounds harsh. It is nonetheless the truth. Here's the other piece of the puzzle. Sin begets sin. When we have one sin which we're committing which we are not repenting for, it tends to make it easier for us to do other sins. And it tends to make it harder for us to develop intimacy with God. It tends to make it harder for us to approach God in prayer, and scripture. And so, it is... Important in that sense for us to strive to rid ourselves of sin as best we can. So that's why it matters. Even though God is merciful and forgiving, and even though I, I would not ever say that there, there is one sin which would be an automatic ticket to hell, um, it, it does still matter that, that we identify sin and seek to avoid it in all areas of our lives. So that's sexuality. We're going to talk about gender for a bit. Now we've already covered this a little bit. Genesis teaches us that we're male and female. There's no indication that there is any sort of inner or true self that's separate from our physical bodies. And our hope for the future is not a disembodied existence on some other plane. It is an embodied existence with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And that means our bodies really do matter. And since they were created by God, they are good and trustworthy. So we are not assigned a gender at birth. We are created with a gender, and it is the same as our biological sex. We see the body as a gift. Our embodiment binds us to all other life and to all other matter. When we breathe, we draw the same air into our lungs that has been exhaled by other living creatures. We borrow a bit of their life to sustain ours. The same is true for eating. We draw strength and energy from the matter of plants and animals. And in this way, our body is a continual reminder to us that we are not autonomous. We are dependent creatures. You can't value the soul if you devalue the body. It is not possible to embrace oneself by rejecting one's body. And in fact, contempt for one's body leads to contempt For other bodies, the bodies of women and laborers and animals and plants, the earth, the aged, the disabled, and the unborn. When we hear from people who are experiencing any sort of problem with their gender, whether it's full-blown gender dysphoria, uh, which is the clinical term for what transgender persons have are are, are experiencing, uh, or whether it's something less serious... What we are hearing from them is essentially a longing for wholeness. And we should recognize that that desire, that longing, it's a good thing. The problem is, within the current gender paradigm of our world, which which separates gender from embodiment, people are pursuing wholeness within a worldview that only accepts fragmentation, that only accepts separating things out. In other words, if they're looking for wholeness within a worldview that only accept, accepts a separation of gender from the body, they will never find wholeness. Because you've taken two things that are meant to be one and tried to divide them already. And If that's a fundamental part of your worldview, you will never find wholeness or completion within that worldview. So we have replaced the image of a whole human whose unity of body and soul reflects the wisdom of our creator and reflects the reality of our creator with a fragmentary model of identity that tries to separate out each of the things that makes us who we are and reshape them according to our own will. So instead of the human self being an icon of the living God, it becomes a smashed idol. And... and. One of the odd things here is the modern ideas about gender which drive much of the conversation here are based entirely on social roles and appearance. But the Christian understanding of gender rejects this altogether. Gender and sex are not about social roles or physical appearance. They're about purpose and being. They're symbols. Male and female coming together in the marital union exist in this state of unity in diversity that symbolizes the nature of God. And the human body, in its dual incarnation as male and female, is a sacred symbol. There is no unsexed human being. And the continuation of our existence depends on our maleness and femaleness. It's part of the design. These bodies are given to us. We don't assign anything to them. They reveal to us God's design and God's purpose because he has imbued them with sacred meaning. And that's true whether we want it to be true or not, whether we agree with it or not. It is the unalterable reality. Now, our biological realities communicate deep truths about God and humanity. When, an, when a man and woman come together in sexual union, they're... Incomplete reproductive systems form one complete reproductive unit. And now the man has the capacity to transmit life outside himself, while the woman has the capacity to receive and gestate that life. These are the fundamental characteristics, by the way, of man and woman. And so in this sense, the man is analogous to God, which does not mean he is like God or more like God than the woman. It's just an analogy. He is analogous to God in the sense that God endows life from himself but stands outside of it. And the woman is analogous to all of humanity because humans are created to receive the love of God, be inwardly transformed by that love, and bear fruit because of that love. And the analogy here holds up whether the individual in question chooses to marry or reproduce or not, because it's the potential for the transmission or reception of life. It still exists. That potential for transmission or reception of life exists whether you choose to actually use it or not. It is still written into our bodies, and we can't get rid of it. There is no way to remove that. Receptivity to God is humanity's ultimate purpose, and women, by their very existence and design, embody this. Now, none of this means that women who bear children are more spiritual than others, or that men are somehow more similar to God. We're just describing a metaphor that has been written into our bodies, and we would be wrong to assume that the metaphor creates any sort of hierarchy. And you'll note in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, there is no hierarchy between Adam and Eve. And there are no specific roles assigned to either one. All of that happens after the fall. So this metaphor that's written into our bodies exists for the sole purpose of helping us understand our purpose and fulfill it. So men don't have any sort of uh, shared capacity, skill, or worth that women lack. It's just that our bodies point toward different spiritual realities. Realities which apply equally to men and to women. Each human body has divine significance. There is a great deal in life that is beyond our control. And that includes our sex, our gender, and our biological development. Now, the one thing we can freely choose is to receive the gifts God has given us. And that includes our bodies. So, what does all this mean for transgender persons? If we affirm that there is no difference between biological sex and gender, then how do we explain the existence of persons who perceive that difference in themselves? Now, first off, let's understand something. Nobody has any good explanation for this. Nobody. There is no medical or psychological explanation for gender dysphoria that has proven true. And many theories, like the idea that you can have a male brain and a female body or vice versa, have been disproven. And we should point out, too, none of this applies to persons who are intersex, which means people who have real, definable, biological realities that split them between the genders. In some cases, they just have, they are just genetically could be either one. Sometimes you have a person who is genetically male, but physically female, or vice versa. Sometimes they actually have both sets of genitals. It happens. It's extremely rare. All of this is very rare and unusual, but it does happen. And in these cases... Um, the person will almost always choose one gender and stick with it, and since their bodies represent both genders, there's nothing about that that's inaccurate or untrue. But this is not what we're talking about when we mention someone who is transgender. A transgender person does not have two biological genders. They have an internal reality, which does not correspond, as they perceive it, to their external reality. And we should also note, this is very different from people who are just effeminate men or masculine women. And and this is very different from people who would call themselves drag queens, so men who like to dress up uh, as women. They're not the same thing. Now, if, as we believe, we are not designed with separate internal and external realities, if the body and the soul are one, you can begin to see why people who have gender dysphoria are experiencing so much suffering. I mean, imagine looking in the mirror and not being able to recognize the person in the mirror as the person you believe yourself to be. They are suffering immensely, and the problem is nothing seems to alleviate it. Transitioning to their chosen gender does not, in the long run, make any difference In the rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide, it doesn't help. What happens is you see a short-term dip in the immediate aftermath. But in the long run, those rates go back up. The rates of anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation, they climb back up in the long run. Which is why major medical institutions have started refusing to perform medical transitions. Um, and allowing teenagers or preteens or children to transition has disastrous results. Uh, to, to, to apply hormone therapy to children who have not finished their physical development, it, it, it almost inevitably sterilizes them. It interferes with proper bone growth, and it causes chronic, debilitating health problems. It should absolutely be banned. Um, all of our proposed medical solutions to the problem either fail or make things worse. And the difficult reality, then, is that right now, it doesn't seem... As if anybody really knows how to help or alleviate the suffering permanently. So as Christians, what are we supposed to do? The only answer is we're supposed to love them. That's it. We love them. We welcome them. We acknowledge that that they are experiencing real turmoil, real suffering, real pain. I can confidently say what I believe about gender and sex, that they aren't different things, that these are embodied realities that we can't change no matter how hard we try, and that we need to embrace and teach these things as truth, but I also want to recognize the immense suffering of trans people. Simply teaching them that biological sex is the same thing as gender and that it's an inescapable reality isn't going to be helpful to them, let's be honest about that. The bottom line is... Nobody understands what's going on with them. No one understands how this is possible. What we do understand is every trans person is made in the image of God. And what they're experiencing is one of the effects of the broken world that we live in. The world does not work the way God designed it to because we have messed it up. And so trans people are suffering as a result of human sin. Not their own sin, but the collective sins of mankind. And that means we have a responsibility to love them, to treat them with dignity, and to genuinely try to alleviate their suffering. And at this point in time, that's probably the best we can do. So we understand that their that they're suffering and their pain is real. And I think we also need to understand and, and proclaim publicly that it doesn't seem as if any of the things the world is pushing as solutions to this problem actually help. It does not appear to be the case that transitioning helps in the long run. It provides short-term relief. But medical transitions, the, the surgeries, the hormone replacement therapy, in the long run, they don't help. And quite often they cause major health problems that, that make things worse. And the unfortunate reality is that because this has become such a sensitive cultural issue, people are afraid to say those things publicly. And we have to say them publicly. The research is there, the data is there. These things harm people. We can say publicly, this doesn't work, this does not help people. Let's keep the research going, let's keep trying to figure out if there is a a way... That we can alleviate their suffering permanently. And in the meantime, let's love them and let's show them acceptance. Let's pray for them. Because they are suffering and at the moment there is no relief in sight. So let's give them a community where they are loved and welcomed and treated like the image bearers that they are. So that's it. That's the last three weeks of teaching condensed into a little over an hour of a podcast. Now I've I've put together a resource list for the people who attended the class over the last three weeks. Uh, I'm going to send it out to them this week. If you would like to have a copy of that resource list, it's a, there's books to read. Um, all really good books, by the way. Um, just email me Forest.divinny at asburycc.org and I will send you the same resource list. These teachings are really important. Hugely important. And and the church has to has to be willing to talk about these things, embrace these things, explain these things. So I would highly encourage you to if I send you resources. To actually, you know, pay attention to them. But there's one that I'm going to lift up to you just right now. And yeah, I recommend books all the time. And folks, you need to read books. You cannot be well-informed on any subject if you're not going to read books. So please, read this book. The title is A War of Loves. The author is David Bennett. You can find it on Amazon. This book is written by a gay man who is now an Oxford scholar. And the book is his story of coming to faith and of wrestling with his sexuality as a Christian. And it will challenge you, whether you're conservative or liberal, it's going to challenge you. Uh But there is no book that has been more influential on my own thinking regarding human sexuality in the church than this one. Um, and so the book is his story, and then he has appendices in the back where he, as an extraordinarily smart Oxford scholar, deals with scripture and theology. So go buy it and go read it. I mean, literally, what, what is your excuse for not reading it? It's a... It's a short book, it's an easy read. Go read it. You are a member. If most of you who are listening to this are members of, of Asbury, you are part of a church where this has become a contentious issue. You may be voting on whether or not your church leads a denomination. And and you know, let's be clear. We're not dividing over same-sex marriage. That's utter nonsense. It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie because Christians cannot get to a point where they disagree over same-sex marriage, unless they first have deep, deep disagreements over the authority of Scripture, the nature of Scripture, and all of that. But you still need to read this book so that you understand how these things tie in, so that you understand why it's not just about same-sex marriage, but it is, in fact, about the authority of Scripture and the nature of Jesus. You need to read it. Go buy it. Go read it. If there's only one book you read out of the whole resources I send out, that's the one to read. So I leave you with that recommendation. So thank you for taking the, the time to listen to this one. I hope it was useful. I hope it was helpful. And that's all. God bless you folks.